The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's happening, guys? Happy Tuesday, and thank you for joining another special episode of Your Welcome. Well, guys, the week that all of us have been waiting for is finally here. I'm happy to say that UFC 281 will go down at Madison Square Garden in just a matter of days. Coming up on today's program, I'm going to discuss Israel Adesanya versus Alex Pierre for a number of different angles. Plus, I want to tell you guys what Blahal Mohammed just said about Hazmat Shemaya. And before we get there, I want to begin today's show by telling you what stood out to me from over the weekend. Oh, my phone won't stop, guys. I'm getting lit up on the issue of gambling and the UFC. I'm getting asked all these questions about it. And there seems to be where somebody really wants some fire going on. We had a fighter over the weekend, and he was the underdog. And he goes out, he he lost the fight in the very first round. His, His knee gave out. It's one of these situations where his, his knee hurt, whatever that was. You, you, you tear your knee, you blew your knee out, your ACL, MCL. What, what, he goes down, he's got to wave the fight off, and this is in the very first round. Now, he was the guy in question. He was the underdog to start with. But prior to the fight, and just prior to the fight, right, which is a little bit of a subjective term when you take time and you say it's just before, but he goes from a 200 to a 400, right? You, you've got this underdog who's now... Twice as much the underdog, meaning money has come in on the other guy. I'm doing my best to explain for you some of the things that you're hearing, okay? This is Chael's goal, and I, I, I get that I'm being a little bit light on details, but if this is perverse as many think that it is, I think this is pretty sensitive stuff, and for all those involved, until we are certain of that, we'd be best to be a little bit light on the details. Here's one of the clues. One of the clues, and you'll hear this all the time, about, as you're following this, you'll hear this everywhere that you go, that they bet the guy every which way to win, right? So they took the underdog, they're betting on his opponent, they're betting against a certain guy, a guy that was already the underdog, so much money came on on his opponent that made him a bigger underdog. You following me? But when you go and bet, particularly if you do this online, you'll get capped off. You can bet on your fighter to win $500, But you could parlay that with another guy for $500, or you could bet that it goes more than one round for $500. See, every every single place that you switch, that's a very common number online, is 500. But you can change the bet. If you change the bet, you change how he's going to do it. So if you're certain that a guy is going to go down in the first round, you could bet TKO, for example. Then you could bet under... One round, which would be under three rounds if you want to get another $500 out there, which is going to be start playing all these different ways. And that is what happened. And that's the reason you keep hearing that. You hear that it was, it, it was bet every single way. That's why you would move it around and switch it up a little bit. Not just because the odds are different or you think you're going to be closer to being accurate, thus getting you a better payout. It would just get you another payout, right? If you're really sure of something, you're going to spread it around every which which way. Think of a roulette wheel. Think of a roulette wheel. If you believe it's going to come the number two, you could get 36 to one if you bet on number two, but at some point they're going to stop you from betting. So then you might also take, right, two happens to be red. You might take a big bunch of money and put it on red. Now, 
that's going to pay you even money. Whereas if you put it on number two, you're going to get 36 to one, but you're so sure you've already maxed out on the two. Now you're going to put it on red. You could also get even money if you said that it was going to come up a number that was even. So you might go put that on even. And now you're spreading around every which direction and somebody else is going to be watching and go, boy, you sure are positive. This doesn't sound like gambling at this point. Some of your actions and some of your behaviors are making it certain. How can you be so certain? And that's where the question's going to come in. And how could you be certain and who would be to blame? Like, for example, I hear a guy who happens to be a wonderful guy, who happens to have a wonderful reputation. I keep hearing his name attached to this. And we know it is because, because he works with this guy. Oh, and he, and he also openly is known to gamble. It's very peculiar. I mean, I think that's very peculiar. I think that's very limited information. And what if this source was right? What if this source had a really strong feeling and he shared it with somebody or a group of people? What if he made a whole bunch of individual phone calls or what if he just sent one text? What if he's in something called a group thread? Do you guys have that? I'm in one right now. It's called college wrestling. All these guys that went to college weren't part of the wrestling program. And we, I mean, I could get a little bit of information to a whole lot of people if I sent it on that one thread. Or I could sit down with you two. The both of us on our window sheet and in one message, I could get it to two people. Now, what if you had some followers on social media and you sent it? You only did it one time. Like, we could only have three or four moves, but if we did them the right way, it could encompass a whole bunch of people. So all of this begins to look very sinister and you have to start to look into it. But before you point your finger, make sure that you understand we don't have these details yet. And coaches are always going to talk about their athletes, always. Somebody's going to come out, hey, how's he looking? Hey, how's he feeling? Yeah, you know, pretty good. Just imagine, guys, I'll tell you a scenario. What if somebody from Dillashaw's camp came forward? Just somebody from Dillashaw's camp, this was not a secret, and said, boy, his shoulder has gone out a bunch of times in training. Let's say you got a bright idea because of that. You might think you've just got a little inside information, wouldn't you? Now, what are you going to go and do with that? And if you did act on that, would that be in bad faith? What would be wrong about having some inside information? How was it presented to you? Who was it presented to you by? Was it just dialogue and just discussion? And what if it went the other way? Oh my goodness, you know, this guy is running. We timed some things. His bench press is higher than ever. His time on a one-mile run, he shaved it down by 5%. He's never looked better. What do you do, right? I mean, this is, at some point, it's just dialogue. At some point, it's just, you're just talking. And at some point, it's pertinent information to a contest that's being gamed on. I'm just sharing with you guys, we're, not, we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near that, yet I've seen a name of a very good guy, a very good and honest man. I've seen it drove through. And I don't like that. I don't think that's fair. It's certainly not right for now. There was a time, I remember this one, Kimbo Slice. Kimbo Slice, rest his soul, fought Seth Puchazelli. They're out there fighting. They're out there. Kimbo's this great big heavyweight. He's the star attraction. And Seth was a tough guy, but he was anything but a heavyweight. And they're out there, bop, boom. Seth throws a jab. And the jab hits Kimbo. And Kimbo goes down and he never recovers. First round knockout via a jab. And it was confusing. It was surprising. It isn't what we thought that we would see in any realm. That Seth had that kind of power, that Kimbo was going to take that kind of a shot, that a jab as opposed to a cross. I mean, I could go on and on about all the things that surprise us. Guys, there's things that happen every single day in life that other people do that surprise us. What kind of evidence is that? Well, Kimbo's from Miami. And just prior to that fight, a number of hours, a half a million dollar purchase came in on Kimbo to lose in the first round. And the bet was placed from the same city that Kimbo lives. That's not a lot. I will admit for you, that's not a lot. Miami's got a lot of people and a lot of people believed in Seth and thought that Seth could do it early. But when you had all these things tying together, there was an investigation and something was launched even with the FBI. If you want to hear more about that story, go out, look it up. You can, you can Google those, those words. The way I remember it though, I think the guy got paid on his half a million. I don't think they tied it into Kimbo, a relationship or anything corrupt. That's how I remember that. Sharing with you guys. 
Sometimes things look really obvious and you think somebody's perverse or you think that a conspiracy is at play. You think that somebody has acted inappropriately. I think to get to that conclusion based on the information we have now is very premature. Save your opinion. Reserve judgment. Let's see how the story plays out. Neil Magny, most wins in welterweight history in the UFC. Have you guys heard about this? If you haven't heard about it, let's just play a quick game. What do you think that number is? What do you think? Neil Magny now holds it. But how many wins does it take to be the most ever wins at welterweight? Go. What's your guess? Think high. Think high, but be reasonable. Don't tell me like oh, a billion wins. It'll be reasonable. 20. 20 is the answer. Magny got it over the weekend over Rodriguez, Danny Rodriguez. And, and I should tell you, Magny was tied when he had 19 wins with George St. Pierre. So you you start understanding the company. You start understanding the weight. You start understanding how hard it is to have a record of any kind. And Neil's got it most wins in the history of that weight class at 20. And he beat Rodriguez. And I recall Rodriguez. I've never got to meet Rodriguez, but I'll, I'll, I also won't forget him. Kevin Lee. Kevin had his, his leg hurt. He changed weight classes. He returns. He returns at 170 pounds. And he fought this guy. This is where I find out about Daniel Rodriguez. Tough. Tough. You guys will recall, Daniel ended up in that in that jackpot over at that UFC where it was going to be Diaz versus Chimaev. And Danny ends up, he was supposed to fight with Holland, but he gets switched and ends up fighting the leech. And then the crowd boos. They didn't agree with the decision. I'm right. I mean, there's, there's a lot on this. Danny's going to want to come in. He's going to want to look good. Magni gets over on him. Now... I'm telling you guys things about the fight that I would have never told you, or at least things that I, if I was going to tell you, I would have told you prior to the fight. I didn't know about it. Nobody told me. I didn't know that they were fighting. Now, I don't want to be the jerk that comes in and starts scolding folks for not getting their message out there. But I could, I could go a step further. I was told on very good authority there was not an event this weekend. That's what I was told. But now I find out that Neil Magny, who's done this more times, oh, and by the way, more times successfully, is on the card, and he's in a co-spot. That makes me real curious. Who's headlining this thing? This has got to be somebody really tremendous. Now, we talked about Neil Magny a number of years ago. The way time goes, but it was about three years ago. And he had just done something real special. And I want to say it was he had gone out and he got his seventh win in a row. And when I say we, it was Errol Hawani and I. And we're talking about Neil. We're talking about how good he is, how impressed we are. And he checks the boxes, right? I mean, he looks very athletic. He's long. He's a handsome guy. At that point, he was young. We're never as young. Three years later, we're not as young as we were then. Neil just does a great job. And when you do hear from him, you're interested in what he says. Like, he really does check every box, but he stays kind of quiet. He goes under the radar. And Errol and I had done a piece. Now, I didn't know Neil. I didn't have an access to Neil. But Ariel did. So after we put the piece out, Ariel hears from Neil, and Neil levels with him and says, when I first saw it, I was mad. I didn't like it. But I slept on it. I slept on it another night. And now I agree. I see that you're right. I have an obligation with the opportunity that I'm being given to get my story and my message out there. He said that he saw that we were right. And my extent of attempting to help or attempting to reach out to Neil Magny had something to do with food. I'm not remembering it clearly. I want to say it was a Sunday. There was something that Neil Magny ate, and I saw it, and I sent him a message. This was over Twitter. But I asked, I was trying to engage this, and whatever I got back is the kind of answer where you have to elect yourself the mayor of Get the Hintville and move on. Whatever response I got, it was a one word, it was something, and okay. Okay, if we can't talk about whatever this was, I don't know how we're supposed to go and talk about anything else. It was just a hard spot for me. It's a hard spot for me when I recognize this talent and I thought I have an obligation, I have an opportunity, I have an audience I want to bring it to, and I got chopped off at the knees. So now here we are with Neil, and here we are all of these years later. I was told on good authority there was not an event at all. 
I find out after the fact there was a record setting event in terms of what Neil did. I start working backwards. I find out it's not the main event. It was a co-main event. Moreover, how did I not hear about this and whose fault is it? Now, before we go back and forth, I only share this because this is largely what we do over here. We look at people who aren't getting attention who deserve it. We then offer suggestions on how they could get it. Or we observe somebody who did a great job of getting attention and we break down, right, like, like a fine poetry. We will break down what the author did that succeeded. If they left us with words or they left us with an emotion. And then we fade to black, roll the credits, and come back and do it again the next day. And what is it that you would like to see from Neil? Right, because there's only so many options, guys, and, and we and I can take it back to school. About every 12 months, I feel as though I must give the exact same speech, which is, "What is promotion?" That's a big mythical question, and I ask it to you, and then I pause and I wait, because I'll hear people that say, "Yes, look at this. I've I've beat 19 men in a row. I'm George, tied with George St. Pierre. I've beaten 20 men in a row. I've now beaten George St. Pierre." How come that story isn't out there? I go, wait, time out. What is, in your mind, promotion? Is it magazine covers? Is it headlines on the dot-coms? Is it main event marquee spots? Is it posters? Is it billboards? What is it? It's storytelling. That's it. If you have heavy promotion, it means somebody has put a lot of money and effort into telling your story. If you're good at promotion, it means you're a good storyteller. If you have a huge fight within your promotion, it means the audience liked the story that you told. It's just storytelling. During the holidays, Ultimate Fighting Championship, Dana White specifically, began to send out presents. They sent presents to 556 athletes under contract. And that, that, that gift was always $500. One time there was even a gift card to the store, to the USCstore.com, 500, to every single athlete. So it's right, it's right around that 500 mark is why I say that. One year it was a, a laptop. But if you were to go see what that laptop cost, it was about $540. Right around this 500, pretty nice gift, right, when you got to buy 556 of them. But Dana sends a camera out. He sends out a camera out one year, and the next year the Christmas was a laptop. Well, these camera and the laptop synced together through a cord that was also part of the gift. And the message, for any of us that took the time to thank the person that gave the gift, Dana would write back, start V-blogging. He did not write back, you're welcome. He did not write back, any time, kid. He did not write back, Merry Christmas. He sent it at the holidays. It was a gift. It came wrapped. He was expecting you to use it to work. He said, start V-blogging. And it was a massive message when social media came through because you used to really need a promoter. So then the promoters would have all of these debates of what is a great promotion. Most big fights, guys, just so you understand, you had the in-house crowd and then you had the betting going along and you had the popcorn you were popping, but most of the business was done and most of the fights were washed over a transistor radio. You couldn't even see it if you weren't live in attendance. These were the big boxing fights. The Jack Johnsons, the Sugar Ray Robinsons. You watch them fight over a transistor radio at some point. So how do you promote the damn thing? How do you get the word out there? How do you get people excited? Same thing was true with professional wrestling. Professional wrestling used to hold events at Madison Square Garden. It was huge, right? Wrestling was believed in this before. They revered the... Uh, re- Veiled the fourth curtain to let us know that they're cooperating with each other. And you get a promoter that would took two athletes. He'd stick them in the back of a cart and he'd drag them through town. He'd drag them through to and say, this monster is going to be at the garden. And people would run out of the stops and they'd run out of the stores. And that's how they did it. This is how they told their story. However you want to do it. Whether you want to get in the back of a cart and have somebody drag you through Times Square. If you know people are going to come look, wouldn't it be the world's worst idea? If you want to take the world for what it is, which is something that operates on free information known as the internet and through social media, and you have a story, and you got a camera, by God, go out and be your own promoter, go out and tell the story. And we've seen guys that have done just that. I mean, I shared with you guys that Kevin Lee had flown to Portland 
and come and see me before he got a plane and flew to, at that time, California, go do the Joe Rogan show. Before he had flown to, he puts his own PR tour together. He didn't feel that he the UFC was doing enough for him. He did his own PR tour on his own credit card with all of his own contacts. When that PR tour was done, he got a phone call that he was going to be fighting for the championship. Just so you know, that's what happened. Kevin Lee got a phone call. It was an interim championship opposite Tony Ferguson, but that's what happened. Colby Covington went and hired his own cameras. Henry Cejudo went and hired his own cameras. And you might say, well, I don't like it, or the UFC production is better. Yeah, I got it. I'm just telling you that if you have a story to tell, they got access to the internet. You got access to the internet. They got cameras, but now you can go get a camera. I'm, I'm just sharing with you. I'm just planting that with you. Whatever you want to do with it is, is up to you. I don't really like to have seen Neil fight. Neil Magny versus Daniel Rudd, that, that is an amazing fight to start with. The fact that it was a co-main event, now I'm going to see these guys for 15 minutes. I mean, these two both got high energy. I just would have loved to have seen that fight. The mere fact that there was a record on the line, I'd have liked to have been there to support Neil Magny. Even if he and I's relationship is very limited to a DM that I found him on Twitter a number of years ago over what I believe was an ice cream sundae, it's still a guy that I like to watch. I'd have liked to have known that. Great promotion is great storytelling. I don't know where this story was. It seems like a really good story. I'd have loved to have brought it to you guys a week ago, but nobody had brought it to me. 2000, 2008, 2022. When it comes to the economy, those are some of the scary years. Dot-com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain, it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers. But over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle the number one cloud financial system. Guys, I've lived through the tough times. They were rough. I can't recommend NetSuite enough to help you business leaders and owners prepare for the unknown. NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. So, how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer, NetSuite. NetSuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improved their visibility and control when they upgraded to NetSuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind special financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash chael. Do it right now. netsuite.com slash chael. That's netsuite.com slash chael. Lahal Mohammed. Guys, did you see the piece? I guess maybe I, I should back up a second. I'm assuming you all saw what Lahal had to say as it, it pertained to Jemiah. Now, Blahal sat down to give a, a statement that was fully after Chemayev, and I mean both guns out, fully locked in. However, he also went after Colby. He mentioned Colby. I saw somebody that was trying to recap what Blahal had said, that, Chimal, uh, 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 that Blahal has gone after Colby and Chemayev. That's not what I saw. That's not what I saw. I think you're misunderstanding. I thought Blahal was very clear that he was after Chemayev. In fact, I don't think I have ever seen anybody more clear and more aggressively try to get a fight with Chemayev than what Blahal did. And when Blahal did begin to bring Colby into it, I believe that Blahal is operating under an assumed rumor that came out that Colby and Chemayev are going to be fighting. I saw that rumor. There was even a poster was made, and this was even released on the underground forum. But now that we've had a couple of weeks to go by, we could take a deep breath. That has not been confirmed by Colby. That has not been confirmed by Chemayev. That has not been confirmed by Dana White. So now we're back at rumor, but I believe Lahal Mohammed was operating under that rumor. And the only time he was going after Colby was to dismiss Colby and explain why he should be in that spot and he should be opposite Chemayev. That's how I interpreted it. 
And we've played this game for a very long time that nobody will fight Chemayev. We've, we've played that game, but unless you're calling Blahal nobody, and maybe that's what we need to rename him. Do we need to rename Blahal nobody? And we just can't say that anymore. And Chemayev doesn't generally let these things slide. If there's fire, there will be a response. Be careful what you ask for. This is genuinely how Chemayev plays the game. More than ever, me, old Chael sitting over here as a fan, I need an answer from Chemayev because I need clarity about Chemayev. Are we doing this, this journey, this path to the championship, are we doing that at 185 or are we doing it at 170? I've never been satisfied with the explanation that we've been given for the botched weight attempt in Chemayev's last contest. It was botched. It was right in the middle of weighed 178 pounds. He was sat right in the middle of 170 and 185. We've never really had that explained to us. Chemayev came from a very different standpoint of, I do not care. I will fight any of them. Bring in this guy or bring in that guy. Don't give me any notice. I don't care. So he saw that it went in line. He saw that he could use the botch in line with the character, the persona, and the message. And he did. I'm still sitting over here. If I'm trying to find out who's next for Chemayev, I got to know which, I gotta know which weight. I mean, I just have to know. Dana went as far as to say putting him in a championship next, next is going to be a challenge. We're talking about the weight. And I just don't have any clarity. And the fact that Chemayev has an answer to the rumor about Covington, that's off That's off brand. By the way, Chemayev generally does things. The fact that Chemayev is not answering to uh, the responsible Hal Mohammed, that is generally off. But should I, should I draw something from that? Should I draw that perhaps Chemayev is looking at 185, which quite frankly, that's where I want him. I've always wanted him at 185. He's a young guy. He likes to train hard. It's hard to train really hard and be in calorie deficit. It's just hard to do. Guy with those kind of skills, I like him at 185, right? Not, nothing too perverse, nothing too sinister, and, and nothing even too sophisticated by me. That is why I'd like to see him there. He's a young guy who likes to train hard. All right. Let a little time go by and keep that training going, put some calories in and move up a weight class, right? My, my math is real simple, but I haven't heard that. I haven't heard anything. I loved the Chemayev experience. It was a marketing campaign. It was the single greatest marketing campaign in MMA that I have had the pleasure of living through. And it was done on accident. Nobody in a room somewhere came up with a strategy and a marketing plan. What we're going to do with Chemayev is we're going to fight him and we're going to fight him really fast again. And we're going to fight him really quick again. And without too much break, we're going to fight him again. Oh, and by the way, he's going to cover the spread of two different weight classes. I mean, that was so damn compelling. And we did away with it. Not only do we do away with it, we're not even trying to preserve it. We're not even trying to preserve a quick turnaround, a bouncing away classes, anyone, anywhere, anytime. We're not even trying to do those things. Okay. But it makes it very difficult. It makes it very difficult for me. I'd like to hedge. I, I'd like to share an opinion. I'd like to say where I want to see him. I don't even know what weight class we're doing. I have to draw something from this. The, the fact that Blahal Muhammad is coming after me, is coming after him so darn hard and not getting a response. Is that a response? Right? You, you ever ask somebody if they want to do something? Maybe asking somebody out, but you, you, you hey, you want to go do something? You want to do something with me? And you get an answer, but it's not a yes or a no. So you come back and you ask again, or a little bit more time, so you come back and ask again, and you get an answer, but it's necessary or no. In all fairness, you have been answered. You have been. They're telling you something through that silence, through that unsureness, through that non-committal. They're telling you something. Is Chemayev telling us he's not coming down to 170? Is Chemayev telling us I'm coming to 170, but I already have something? I don't know what you draw from it, but I don't know how Blahal Muhammad could have been more clear. I don't know how Colby Covington could be more quiet. Colby's training. He's hungry. He wants to fight, but he's not saying anything, right? Like everybody is playing a little bit of an angle. 
And it's very tough. It really is very tough to sit back in our position and know which direction they're considering on going or what angle they're going after. It's very tough. The silent game doesn't get you very far in this business. In a business that we know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I think things are going to work out for Bahal. I think traditionally speaking, Bahal is the one doing things right, but we've got silence from two sides that we're interested in. Colby, Jemiah, quiet. A rumor that they're fighting, a poster that's out on the underground. What part do you believe? What part are we most likely to be confirmed? And when two guys are sitting there with their mouths shut, it makes things pretty hard. So I want to transition now to UFC 281, which is one of the biggest cards of the year. A night which features Israel Adesanya and Alex Piera fighting for the middleweight championship of the world. And guys, it's been quite the journey to get here. All right, Piera is getting ready to fight for a world championship. Yeah, okay, shocking news, right? We've all been waiting for this, but Piera did it very quickly. And I wanted to come over here and I wanted to talk about his path and I wanted to compare it to some other guys' paths who are also extremely fast. Pierre has had five UFC fights. Now, I'm prepped for this. I've studied this. I felt as though I had even watched him. So I sit down and I get a little closer and my producer tells me, no, Chael, hold on. He's only had three. If you're talking about UFC fights, he's only had three. This will be his eighth fight Overall, in mixed martial arts, he begins to tell me about jungle fights. Begins to tell me about LFA. Well, I've seen Piera's three UFC fights. And don't think I'm being rude if I don't state the first opponent's name and the second's name, but I did watch it. And when he drew into Sean Strickland, that was largely because nobody else wanted to fight Sean Strickland. Now, that was advertised. That was told to us. That was not hyper folklore. That was very true. The top guys did not want Piera. Strickland was ranked number six, but was in a conversation to be fighting for a championship should he want to make that conversation a little bit louder. When they step in there, I remember these things. But I missed two fights. I thought. I did not realize it's only three times in the UFC and straight into a world championship. Now, I don't have anything I can compare that to. John Jones's run was very quick, just by example. John Jones debuted, and it was in 2008. But John Jones debuted, let's call it January. My dates aren't right here, but let's call it January. By July, he had a 6-0 record. I mean, he crammed these fights in. He goes out, this is on the underground circuit, right, or the regional circuit, and he gets six fights just back to back to back, boom, he's in the UFC. Within the same year that he started the sport professionally, he'd amassed a 6-0 record and got signed to the UFC. That's fast. If we look at how quick Conor McGregor came in and got to a main event shockingly fast, Brock Lesnar did the same thing. By the way, starts out with a loss. Brock debuts against Frank Mir in a feature match and a feature card position, loses, and still within three fights gets to a main event world title opportunity. I mean, we've seen these ones that are really quick, but look at Piera. Now, Piera and Adesanya are both feeling a need to convince us, the audience, that the other one is scared. I don't know that I've seen anything quite like this. Of course, I have seen opponents try to convince the audience that the other guy doesn't want to do it, that the other guy has the pressure, that the other guy is the one sweating. Of course I've seen that. But I just can't recall a time where both of them were working equally as hard to convince us, the audience, who does not care in the least which guy wants to fight less. And I also don't know that it matters. I mean, I'm just sharing for you. I don't know that it matters. I believe Piera. I believe Piera is very sincere that when he left kickboxing and came to MMA, he was coming after Izzy, period. I believe that. I believe Izzy, who got 
to MMA and got to the top echelons, noticed that Piera, a former opponent, was starting to follow in his footsteps, and I don't believe that he minded. I don't believe Izzy did anything to show that he was going to flinch. I don't think he tried to leave the division. I don't think he tried to talk down Pierre. I don't think when a guy's got three fights, that's not very many. Three fights in the UFC? This is shocking. Did it have not huge star power coming in, right? Don't compare him to Brock Lesnar. Not this big star power. Don't compare him to Conor McGregor or to Ronda Rousey, what they did where they came in with something really hot. Came in at Scratch Street, had a backstory if anybody was willing to listen. Got his skills co-signed by Glover Teixeira, who has never really built anybody up to this degree before. I mean, you have our attention, but you're not in massive fights. These are not main event fights that Pierre is doing. This is not against ranked opponents that Pierre is doing. So all I'm suggesting for you is that if Izzy was in fact hesitant or scared, they love to use the word scared, right? Professional cage fighters. But if he fell into one of those categories, he would have had a lot of room to resist. He would have been well within his rights to say, not right now. Keep doing a good job, but not right now. And I do have to remind you and take you back to the moment that this fight was made. Dana White did not make this match in a back room and come and tell the people. Dana didn't even hint this in. We did. We, the audience, did. When Piera drew as high as Strickland, and we knew that Strickland should be in the discussions for a world title opportunity. He wasn't creating them, but we knew with those six or seven in a row that he was, that he should be, that that should be a semifinal, a title eliminator, if you will, for Sean. So then we decided, well, we're going to give that to Pierre as well. When that fight ends, you bring out another match, and then you bring out Izzy. Okay, But you got to picture this. This is all the same night. The same night, Piera beats Strickland, and we decide that it's going to be him versus Izzy. Izzy doesn't know what we've decided. Izzy doesn't know what is being discussed. He doesn't know what's being typed and sent out. He's in the back warming up. Comes out to the Undertaker gimmick, gets in their handles business, and Joe Rogan interviews him. It's extremely important that you remember this detail. When Joe Rogan interviews him, Izzy Adesanya, who has never left the ring, not since being champion without making it clear who his next opponent is going to be. When Joe Rogan interviews him, Joe comes very light. Very, very light about who do you think should be next. There's a lot of good options out there. And Izzy took the mic, stopped, cut Joe Rogan off, and said, who are we kidding? Next is Piera. He stepped right in front of it. So the idea that Izzy is sidestepping and or scared, I don't know is factually correct. Izzy would have the right to sidestep, and he also has the right to be scared. He's a human being. He has the right to do all of these things. But in a game of bluff, where was the blink? What was the tell? I didn't see it, and I don't believe it. I also would have to say the same thing for Piera who's coming up this quickly, who would have the right to call out different opponents, who would have the right to get a little bit of experience, who would have the right to say, I'm one away. Boy, Madison Square Garden, the lights are a little bright out there. My former nemesis, the whole reason I'm doing this, it's all being a reality right now. Boy, this is quick. They would have had the right. I didn't see either one do it. I don't see the blink. I don't see the tell. And you guys want to know something I'm super curious about? Izzy's walkout. Because I do believe both athletes, when they're talking about the other one's scared, the other one's feeling too much pressure, I do believe the other one's got the right. There is a lot on this on a personal level. What is between these two boys is more than we've been brought in on. It's very difficult rhetorically to explain to the audience when you have a personal vendetta, even if that is competitive, even if it's just a healthy competitive rivalry, it's very hard to explain when that is my person. Very tough. And if Izzy walks out to normal music and he has his game face on and in the ring we go, we will be told something as an audience. But if Izzy performs... 
if he entertains on the way to the ring, we're going to be told something else. We're going to be told that this Piera that we thought everything was on the line with this, this was the whole house was built on this one card not being removed. Is he's going to show us he treats him and views him the same as he does everybody else. It's going to be a very interesting moment. I look forward to the fight. But that's between those two. I don't know who's going to win, and, and neither does I. I don't know who's going to land. It's a two-man sport. There's a lot coming at me. But as far as the approach, as far as who's nervous, as far as who's scared, there's been big talk about that coming into this match. I've heard more about that than I have. I'm going to chop your leg down and hit you, with, knock you out with a straight. I've heard more talk about you don't want it, I'm haunting you, and vice versa. And I will know. I will know who's right on that when I watch Adesanya walk to the cage. UFC 281 is live from New York this Saturday. Get closer to the octagon with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the UFC. Right now, new customers can bet $5 on UFC 281 and get $200 in free bets if your fighter wins. Check this out. Right now, everyone can earn up to 100% boost with DraftKings stepped up parlays. Go to DraftKings Sportsbook app, place a parlay today with three or more picks and combine multiple bets like which fighter will win, total rounds, and more. I gotta tell you guys, I'm giving a good look at Adesanya and I know a lot of people think there's gonna be an upset, but I think there's something to be said for experience. I like Adesanya and you wanna hear this? And I like Chandler. And if I put those two together, the payout is more than four times as big if I had kept them separate. With even bigger payouts, DraftKings Sportsbook is where I go to bet on the UFC. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app right now. Use the promo code CHAIL. Throw down $5 on UFC 281 and get $200 in free bets if your fighter wins. That's code CHAIL this Saturday at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of UFC. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. I was just looking at Adesanya's record, some kind of like a, a promotion for an upcoming fight, a tale of the tape. Guys, off the top of my head, but I'll get you awful close here. 24 MMA fights, 80 kickboxing matches, six or 10 professional boxing matches, six of them. Total numbers like 111. I'm, I'm literally looking at this. I'm just going real fast here. Just going real fast. I did not realize that. Now, it's a very different perspective for me. Living in Portland, in Oregon, in America. We don't do a lot of kickboxing. You could really search it out. But if you were an avid kickboxer, if you found that's a niche sport, so now you find somebody, who are you going to find to compete with? If you find somebody to compete with, who's going to host it? Who's going to come and watch it? How does this business move forward? Just a, just a tricky one. But other parts of the world, it's not necessarily that complicated. We all hear the stories about Thailand. You could go out on a Tuesday night to a local bar. They're going to bring you Thai fights. And someone else will do it on Wednesday and Thursday, Friday. We hear those stories, but we don't have that here with any kind of combat sport. We don't have wrestling on a yearly basis every day. We don't have judo. We don't have karate. We don't have amateur boxing. I'll just share with you, Izzy was able to find 80 kickboxing matches. What a circuit. What a contact he must have. But what a unique experience. And I'm reading that and going, okay, but what does that take out of you? At what point are you learning and you're growing and getting better? And at what point does it begin to take out of you? And of all those matches that Izzy had, I get you close to 111 guys. He lost seven of them. Seven times? I imagine that Izzy started this as a, as a boy. I imagine he started it as a child. Seven times ever? I have had months where I dropped seven competitions. Many, many people have at some point in our life, everything's going wrong and you're doing a whole bunch of matches and they're every single Saturday. And on Thursdays for part of your life, you'll also have a dual meet, two different competitions, seven matches in his entire life, man, that's insane. That must be the best way to train. 
That must be, if I have an aspiring athlete, somebody comes to me, what's the best thing I can do to their son? Get him 80 kickboxing fights, get him 10 boxing matches, bring him over to MMA. But, he, uh, but what about the grappling? That seems important. No, uh, throw it out. Don't do any grappling at all. You'll work at that in the practice room somewhere. It'll be enough. That'd be the worst advice I could ever give. That is terrible. That, that is ridiculous. I can't even believe that we've got empirical evidence that that worked. That is interesting. Why? Why did that work and how? Brian Stan, who's as tough of a guy as you're ever going to come across, not just physically, but mentally, he understands what it takes. And Brian Stan maintains that in an MMA situation, you cannot cardioblastically keep up with somebody that comes in wrestling heavy that is wrestling experienced, no matter how hard you train. Brian goes further to explain that, that you just, it takes a lifetime to build the lactic acid. It will not come through in a training camp or even if you get a wild hair in your 20s. If that person comes heavy in wrestling and they're experienced, the fatigue and exhaustion, you better find another way to beat them. That's what Brian Stan maintains. Now, he's right. Randy Couture, start real early stories, was a wrestler. And I, when I say the term was a wrestler, I don't mean like he used to wrestle and then he gets an MMA. No, he was active. He was a wrestler. 1997 was the year. Randy had goals to be on the 2000 Olympic team. He's got three years of wrestling, active and competitive, that he's pursuing when he also every now and again slips off and does a fight. Randy had one belief, and he won a world championship. World championship with one strategy and one belief, which is, I don't need to know the resume of this guy. I don't know if he, I don't need to know if he prefers arm locks or uppercuts. I don't need to know anything he's done. As long as I know one thing, he doesn't have a lifetime of wrestling. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go make him wrestle. He's going to want to box with me. He's going to want to kick with me. I'm going to make him wrestle. Now, you have to understand in a wrestling match, that doesn't work. What the hell does it even mean? I'm going to make a guy wrestle. What, what, what does that even mean? In a wrestling match, we're going to determine the winner off of a differential of points when time runs out. So you can't just go make him wrestle. You got to get points. You got to score. You got to take out of actual strategies, but not in MMA. As light as Randy's idea was, I watched it work. I would watch Randy come out there and grab a hold of the guy. Not do any technique that would get him points in wrestling. He was just making him wrestle. Whether it was pushing and pulling on the feet, whether it was something called pummeling, whether it was getting under it, whether it was putting your weight on it, he's going to make him wrestle. When I get down to the ground, I'm going to make him wrestle. Randy would hand fight from a grounded position, but he was also the first to do it. He would hand, just like he was on his feet pummeling in a Greco-World match, he would do that on the mat. He's making the guy wrestle. Just make him wrestle. Just make him wrestle. Because Randy had a belief that no matter who he is, no matter what he's done. Very similar to what Brian Stan said, if he hasn't done a lifetime of it, no matter how prepared, skilled he is, he can't do this. And that's a very real thing in life. I had a run. I despise running. You guys can relate to me. I despise running. And I had a run that I did, and it required so damn much mental toughness just to put the shoes on and get out the door, because I didn't like running that much. But it was 1.6 miles. That's not a big ask of anybody, let alone a professional athlete. That's not a big ask. In many gyms, that's called your warm-up. In other gyms, that's called your cool-down. This is all, all in. This is all that I'm going to do. Now there is a trick to it, which is... I'm going to go pretty hard. I'm going to push myself. But moreover, I did it into a mountain. The city that I live in of West Lynn is a city built into a mountain. It's a wonderful place to go outside and get your own exercise because you're going to have flat areas. And then you're going to have a little bit of a graded area. And then you're going to have to come back up a hill. But as soon as you get up there, you're going to come back to a flat area, back down a little bit, back up a hill. Great place to go run. But I had these built-in things. And I would run the whole thing until I got to the incline. That's where I would push. It was hard. 20 and 30 second spurts, that was it. They get a little bit of a recovery time. 20 and 30 second spurts. I did this run. And the run took me about 11 and a half to 12 minutes. But I did this run with a friend. And the friend was just in town for the night. 
who did marathons. She competed and did marathons, half marathons, full marathons, 10K, 5K, right? Excellent shape. But wasn't used to running the hill. She was exhausted. She came in just behind me. Now, in fairness, she had to be behind me because I'm. She, she's never done the run. She kind of needs me in front to show her where to go. She said she was exhausted. Said that was way harder than doing a marathon. Now, it's 11 and a half minutes. 11 and a half minutes of running. How could 11 and a half minutes of running be more difficult than two hours and 40 minutes of running? How? Well, different fatigue. It's a different conditioning when you go into an exercise that you're not used to. So Israel Adesanya, in my final analysis, is proving to us, right? This has never been done. It's got an amateur bet. We see guys come over for football. We've seen guys come over from, from damn near everything at some point. But to purely be MMA, absolutely no grappling, no competitions that we've ever seen anywhere. No wrestling matches, no jujitsu, no sambo, no ju none. So that's all done in the practice room. All of it is done in the practice room. How good would you be at something if you were never going to show it to the world? If mom and dad were never going to come down and watch you, how good would you get at something? How could you? What would your motivation be? Why would you work so hard? He did it and he did it in the practice room. And as I study those numbers, it also makes me reflect on Sonia's fights, which is not the principle that Randy Couture won a world title with. Nobody's made him wrestle. Yoel Romero didn't make him wrestle. Brunson didn't make him wrestle. I bring those guys because these, these are excellent competitors. Adesanya does get to keep that range. He does have a distance. When guys who are good at wrestling do wrestle, sometimes they get the position, but they don't wear him out. They don't tire him down. They don't make him wrestle because he finds a way back up and he goes back to his range. It's very hard to do. It takes an immense amount of skill. I can't think of anybody else in the sport where I could provide that same example. But it does at least leave me with one thought, which is a future competitor of Adesanya might be wise somewhere along the way, consider doing it, make him wrestle. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. I want to remind you that if you haven't already, please be sure to review this program on Apple Podcasts. We've gotten a lot of great ones recently, like the one from Donnie, which says, great content, no nonsense. Well, thank you, Donnie. I'm going to be back with more great content on Friday. Until then, I'm Chael Sutton, and you are welcome.